Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. We would be flooded with donations, with urgent emergency relief. Fall down! Come back! Come back! Welcome to 2020, Scott Morrison. That was Australia's Prime Minister being heckled by angry residents of Cobargo, devastated by bushfires raging through their town. Beware, Scott Morrison, a populist leader with a big majority. And Gary Indanami, welcome, a true welcome to everyone else. The show this week is about looking at the last decade, the 2010s, I think. More accurately, we'll be looking at the decline of neoliberalism, which had promised to reform capitalism by deregulation, privatisation and austerity. In the aftermath of the global financial crisis in 2007, the Greek economy collapsed, forcing European banks and International Monetary Fund to bail them out and insist on austerity inside the country. The Greek government borrowed 30 billion euros, but were required to slash public spending, which meant that people were impoverished and jobs were scarce. 40% of young people are still unemployed in Greece. Public sector debt is still nearly twice that of the gross domestic product. The Greeks suffered more than people did in the United States during the Great Depression of the 30s. It became evident that the reforms promised by the neoliberals had failed. This led to people questioning capitalism, but they also questioned notions of left and right, socialism versus free enterprise. In its place, populist leaders have emerged. In the West, that means Trump, Johnson and Scott Morrison. Let's go to this anti-Trump song written not long after his win in the presidential election by a band into it, over it. This band went to Bergen-Belsen, which was a death camp during the Nazi regime in Germany, and it did so on the day of the election, which caused a big stir given the subject of the, of the song.
That was um, Trump Talk and Nukes by Tim Heidecker. I've got a prediction about Trump. He'll win the 2020 presidential election off the back of failed attempts by the Democrats to impeach him for seeking foreign influence in the 2016 election. How ironic. Now, for the 2010s, let's look at First Nations people. The 2010s saw a rise in international solidarity between Indigenous people talking about sovereignty as a means of throwing off the yoke of colonialism. Locally, we saw protests against the G20 in Brisbane in 2014 and the Commonwealth Games in Brisbane in 2018. Both protests saw a new, younger leadership emerge. I think the spirit of those people is captured by Ancestress in this song, Air, Water, Land. Why are so many problems labeled too hard to solve? There's people starving in our backyards as the days unfold. Solution to fit a crooked mold No excuse, no escape So they take from my soul I listen for my ancestors They're telling me to find the answers Can't turn away from the land's voice And once I hear it, I got no choice Cause there is no sanity inside in humanity Sometimes it feels like nothing's enough to replenish me But I'll fight for the life Of generations far ahead of me Cause there are rights that are you and I Humanity's dependency Air, water, land, understand Even the queen's got to breathe The deepest silence I can find in the city grind Riddled with violence I incline is a hard time It's like we're going down a one-way dead end street They mind my sacred land And sleep at night How can't they understand Why my spirit cries I feel the taking with every single piece I listen for my ancestors They're telling me to find the answers Can't turn away from the land's voice And once I heard it I had no choice There is no sanity in such inhumanity Like nothing's enough to replenish me But I'll fight for 
was a paradigm shift favourite in the 2010s. That's uh, Ancestress with Air, Water, Land. As we move into the 2020s, there will be attempts at a treaty between First Nations people and the Australian government. For example, the theme for this year's NAIDOC, now that stands for National Aborigines and Islanders Day Observance Committee, those NAIDOC celebrations, the theme is Voice, Treaty, Truth. Such a treaty would have legal outcomes. There would be recognition of Aboriginal people's prior occupation of, and of the many injustices that occurred. Such a treaty will not be successful unless Aboriginal people are given the space to come up with their own proposals in their own way. For example, the Uluru Statement released in 2019 was rejected by the Turnbull Government now, it had been worked out by Aboriginal groups across the many nations that exist in this vast South land. I don't know what the, um, the final form the treaty will take, but if whitefellas interfere in the process and Aboriginal people aren't able to follow their own path, it will be a failure. One struggle that has brought whitefellas and blackfellas together in the 2010s is opposition to the Adani mine in central Queensland. Spokespeople from the Wagon and Jangalingo people have been vocal at rallies organised by striking stu students and Extinction Rebellion and Frontline Action on Coal. Adrian Baragaba has hit a nerve with environmental activists. Here is an English woman who lives in New Zealand. Her name is Ruth Mundy, singing against the Adani mine. to minimize 
funds to someone known to be corrupt Known for spilling coal and not cleaning up Known for bribery and fraud Known for tax evasion Known for total devastation Of villages and beaches Of rivers and lives Known for workers overworked on the paradigm shift and we're doing a review of the last decade the 2010s in the uk there's brexit and the election of boris johnson i suppose both have been a long time coming now if we listen to billy bragg's song full english brexit he's tried to say what the alienated elderly working class person what why they wanted to break from europe Neighbours don't drink at the local Or have kippers for breakfast like me The food that they eat smells disgusting They'd rather drink coffee than tea It's true that their kids are respectful they gave me their seat on the bus But it's just that there's so many of them That I fear what'll become of us I'm not racist All I want is to make things how they used to be I don't 
my country But to say so Oh no I never get no sympathy Once we ruled over an empire So it feels like some kind of defeat To comply with rules drawn up by strangers And measure in meters, not feet We don't want to go but by jingo we can't be in charge, then we must But don't be offended, dear neighbour It's not you, this is all about us But it's alright, alright I think i found a remedy Yes, it's alright Gonna be alright It's a full English Brexit for me That was Billy Bragg with full English Brexit. One aspect of the UK election that was that the Tories' vote did not increase. It remained the same, but the Labor vote went to pro-Brexit parties. Thus, Johnson won a landslide against Labor and the Liberal Democrats. Labor did put up a social democratic program to make broadband free, for example, nationalise British Rail, telecom and water, and to improve the lives of both young and old. People in the South and the North did vote for the Labor Party, but not elsewhere. Johnson won on the single issue, Brexit. People are usually loyal to parties, but not on this occasion. The right wing of, of the Labor Party allowed Corbyn to be attacked for his support of Palestine, his opposition to the Saudi war against Yemen and his promise to indict Tony Blair for war crimes. At least 30% of the country seems to agree with Corbyn. About five years ago, I attended a forum organised by the 17 Group in Brisbane to discuss the nature of the Israeli settler state. One of the speakers, Joseph Monsour, gave this account of what living in Palestine is like today. I just thought to start off I'd pull out what I call a day in the news in Palestine and, and it's, it's not a bad day for Palestine and I went through the Man News Agency headlines and I listed out all the different stories they had on that website which is one of the main websites, it's an independent website of the Palestinian territories and the first headline was French MPs vote in favour of recognising Palestinian state. So a, for the Palestinians that would be a positive headline. Um, the second headline was about the early call for an election in Israel because of the coalition crisis. The third headli headline was about the PA forces, the Palestinian Authority forces, and they were operating in an area called H2. 
Now they designate all the areas by these sorts of symbols and it's the first time they'd offer, operated there in daytime and they were performing security work there which means they were suppressing resistance. Now H2 is an area near Hebron. The third headline was prisoners submit a list of demands to Israeli authorities and it's not unusual just about every day to see some sort of headline about the situation of the many Palestinian political prisoners. The third headline was about the, U the UN Security Council considering the resolution that's been put to them to put a deadline on the peace talks and a resolution of the conflict. Um, it's unlikely that that will pass because a US veto will prevent it. Another headline was about Egypt closing the Rafa crossing after letting a, a group of Palestinians return home. The Rafa crossing between Egypt and the Gaza Strip opens for brief moments and then closes. The third, the, the, the next headline was soldiers fire at undocumented Palestinian workers near Tukal, Tukalrum. It's not unusual to, and usually there's a lot more headlines about um, soldiers opening fire on uh, civilian workers or uh, people trying to move from one place to another. And this is not an unusual event either. Israeli forces demolish East Jerusalem house under construction. It's a regular occurrence. Israeli forces detain seven Palestinians in East Jerusalem. Palestinian man defies Israeli forces alone. Israeli forces raid Huwara village. The Pope says no Middle East, no Middle East without Christians. A Palestinian woman accused of stabbing an Israeli in a serious condition after being shot. The family deny she did any stabbing. Israeli forces raid Al Qaeda village. Egypt opens the Rafah crossing for a second consecutive day. 238 stranded Palestinians enter Gaza. It's a, a normal series of headlines. It demonstrates the situation in the country, the impact of the occupation on the um, Palestinian people. The Palestinians have struggled to tell their story. In August 2014, the Palestinian Druze poet Samir al-Qassam died. The Western media, not surprisingly, was unlikely to report the death or the story of the well-known Palestinian poet. It doesn't generally report on Palestinian writers, on films, songs, women's cooperatives, even the civilian demonstrations weekly against the separation wall or the activity of the international solidarity movement. As an example, when the recent celebrations were held in Europe at the ending of the German separation wall, the Palestinian activists and the international supporters used sledgehammers to knock a hole in the Israeli separation wall, was it reported. The narrative on the Palestinians is usually about armed struggle, rockets, bombings, knifings, using cars to attack settlers, Israeli police or armed forces. The rest of the story is generally ignored. My view of it is a different story. It's about settlers' attempt to er eradicate the Palestinians as a people. The story is hidden in the falsehood of a land without people for a people without land. This was a common expression used by Israelis to justify the dispossession of the Palestinian people. So who are the Palestinian people? It's often said the Palestinians are not a nation, and that's been used to justify imperialist project in Palestine. Galdi Meir, one of the early prime ministers of Israel, 
said, there's no such thing as Palestinians, so it's hard to give back land to no one. She also said of these non-existent people, we can forgive Arabs for killing our children. We cannot forgive them for forcing us to kill their children. We will only have peace with Arabs when they love their children more than they hate us. These great distortions spring from a small truth. Palestinians in the 1940s, like other Arab peoples, didn't see themselves as a nation, as such, in the European sense. This was the case for the Lebanese, the Syrians, the Iraqis, the Jordanians and the rest of the Levantine people. It doesn't mean that they didn't rise up against the British or the French, but the basis of the op opposition was more founded in pan-Arab parochialism. The Arab nationalism was developing in each state area, defined by the 1920s Sykes-Picot Agreement, and each peoples were attempting decolonisation in a process to mirror the image of a European nation. I think you might have seen recently that the Islamic State has attempted to challenge that Sykes-Picot agreement by symbolically bulldozing the Syrian-Iraqi border. My experience of this nationalism, or the lack of it, is personal. Our parents were from a small Lebanese village in the northeast of the country near the Syrian border, <coughs> Ras Balbek. When our father came to Australia, he had a Syrian identity card. When our mother came years later, she had a Lebanese identity card. In reality, there's little difference in culture and language between citizens of the Palestinian villages and towns, the Lebanese villages and towns, the Syrian villages and towns. The reality for the ordinary people of these lands was, more, was that they were more committed to their town, their district, or their religious affiliation than the nation state. And, and this reality continues today. But you can't deny their long attachment to their land. The Arabic word is balad, homeland. It was the term our father always used. If we make a comparison to the Aboriginal Australians, they also didn't present a coherent and united response to European settlement. But by the same token, you can't deny them an even longer attachment to their land and communities. It's mainly Europeans that require a nation state and an armed forces supporting it as a counter to imperialism and foreign domination. In this sense, peoples other than most Europeans are fragmented and vulnerable. Norman Pollock, a writer who's often posted on Counterpunch, stated, the fragmentation of the Palestinian community and the present reality of occupation is for the Israelis' standard operating procedure. He concludes that from day one of Israeli settlement and the creation of the Jewish state, population displacement, forced evacuation, ethnic cleansing, a process of economic and psychological pulverisation of the will of those who remained and, and people subject to permanent ex exile in their own land. It's been a 60-year process since 1947 and one of the responses has been poetry. When that Palestinian poet visited the Palestinian refugee camp in Yarmouk in Damascus, he was car carried seven kilometres on the shoulders of the people in a tribute. So resistance is partly about poems. Nazri Hajjaj's poem challenges the US military industrial complex, notorious for pro providing guns to the oppressor and food aid to the oppressed. His poem, how humane and civilized stole my land, burned my trees, jailed my son, killed my children, drank their blood, then ground their bones at McDonnell Douglas and offered them back to me as a present in a flour sack to torture me all my life. This is America. America indeed. Um, that was Joseph Monsour speaking at the 17 Group talk 
about um, the Israeli settler state and apartheid in that in that country. I um, more recently this year, in fact, I spoke with Ken Davis from Union Aid Abroad, and he talks about the difficulties faced by Palestinian people today. So let's go to that interview that I did with um, Ken Davis. From the Palestinian viewpoint, land is a central uh, aspect of identity and sovereignty. Uh, so this raises, for Palestinians, this raises questions not only of resilience, but um, it, it raises questions of uh, sovereignty in terms of land, water and food and self-determination. That is, being able to manage their own internal markets, uh, which at the moment are an enclave of the, uh, you know, dominating Israeli market. So the sim symbolism of... Um, you know, a farming family or a woman or a, a, you know, a young woman getting a job in agricultural production is very central uh, for Palestinians both in Gaza and in the West Bank. This is a central cultural, political and social question well beyond the, you know, the question of money. I read a book called The Lemon Tree, not the film, but um, this mm. book outlined the difficulties that people had in just getting back their land and they, they entered into a, a cooperative agreement in this, the, the family mm. and, and uh, they managed to start up a, um, a joint educational school in that the house and the and the the land around it, um, both um, Palestinian and Israeli kids. So I sort of I get I get what you're saying there, but there's other things that you notice from at least from a, from uh, the news media. For example, during the recent Great March of Return, mm. you can see that agricultural land is being confiscated by Israel Israeli defence forces. Does that place enormous difficulties on Afida as a um, an assisting organisation in Gaza? No, indirectly. So, so the problems in Gaza and West Bank are slightly different. In Gaza, um, a lot of the agricultural land is near the you know the temporary border or the fence you know with Israel or with Egypt. The area that Israel mandates as a, a no-go area can be 150 meters or 300 meters or sometimes up to 700 meters. So because Gaza is only 365 square kilometers uh, to have a big buffer zone uh, removes a very big percentage of agricultural land. And also in that area, that border area, the land is uh, subject to um, Israeli pesticides and Israeli uh, uh, herbicides. Uh, you're not allowed to have fruit trees. So in the past it might have been, you know, oranges or whatever, but you can't have olives or, or almonds or you know, fruit trees in that area. So people are mainly using it only for uh, forage crops. So that, that creates a really big problem in Gaza and also that, um, you know, people can't go out far out to sea in Gaza. And the coastal aquifer is dead. So um, I, don't, I, I think it's about 400 million square, uh, what do you call it, cubic metres of water is uh, used from the coastal aquifer, like from people taking water out of the ground. And the natural replacement is around 30 million. So the rest is intrusion of seawater. So the quality of water people are getting from the ground in Gaza is very, very poor, very salty. It's contaminated from agricultural runoff in Israel and now contaminated by the uh, inability to treat sewerage in Gaza. Um, so the big problem, the big constraint is, is, is mainly water in Gaza. 
Uh, in the West Bank, it's different because the settlements are expanding. 60% of the West Bank is uh, Area C, which is total Israeli control. Um, that includes settlements and military lands and includes all of the Jordan Valley except for Jericho. Um, areas A is Palestinian built-up areas, you know, like the city of Ramallah or city of Nablus. Area B is the uh, land around the Palestinian cities, um, which can be used for agriculture. But even in Area B, you can't dig a new well um, or, um, you know, because Israel wants to control the groundwater. Um, so the expansion of settlements or roads or military bases uh, constantly threatens uh, Palestinian agriculture. Uh, in particular, um, you know, settlers destroying olive groves or citrus groves or, uh, uh, you know, things like that. Um, and there's, there's related problems about control of pests. So uh, wild pigs are, are a big problem. Uh, and because of the uh, wall, the uh, separation wall, but also the, the walls around the settlements, um, you know, things like uh, wild pigs uh, disproportionately destroy the Palestinian farmlands. So I wanted to ask you about uh, Afida's funding and in the light of what you've said, what can our listeners do to assist Afida or Union Aid Abroad? You know, we receive funding from our um, constituency, which is, you know, the trade union movement and, uh, you know, individual members. So people are welcome to like, join and make contributions and you can decide, you know, which countries or which projects you'd like to support. But the bigger issue is, um, I think, what we need to say to the Australian government is uh, to retain a robust... Uh, aid program for uh, Palestinians, both inside the Palestinian territories and the refugees. Um, uh, you know, that's come under question a lot publicly, um, you know, in the last couple of years. And uh, I think um, to say to the Australian government, uh, Australia has a moral obligation to continue to fund UNRWA for the refugees, and it should fund Australian NGOs that work directly with Palestinian uh, democratic civil society organisations to deliver what is needed for development and resilience in, in Palestine. So, uh, you know, I think people, if they can uh, talk to their local members uh, or their senators and say, um, you know, in the Australian community, a lot of people genuinely want uh, practical assistance uh, for Palestinians. Is there anything you'd like to add? What's good about Australia is we're, we're, we have, um, in general, we've done a whole lot of practical uh, support for Palestinians inside Palestine and in exile. Uh, majority opinion in, uh, in Australian community is in favour of the rights of Palestinians. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that's good, and I reckon it's important that we try and get our government to reflect that uh, because there's a lot of pressure from the Trump administration uh, to adopt an aggressive uh, pro-Israel, uh, pro-Saudi uh, policy. And I think it's important that the Australian community opinion uh, means that we step back a bit from, um, you know, a tight alliance with Israel and Saudi Arabia and Emirates in the region and that we express a heartfelt support for people that are suffering and that includes Palestinians but also people in Yemen and Syria and so on. 
our aid project needs to reflect the sentiments, the genuine sentiments of the Australian people. That was Ken Davis from Union Aid Abroad talking about food, water and land in Palestine. 2020 may prove to be a watershed year for the Palestinians, particularly if Trump wins the US elections and Netanyahu or his replacement pushes ahead with Israeli plans to remove Palestinians from the West Bank. You're on the paradigm shift and we're talking about or reviewing the decade that has just gone past and how it highlights the failure of economic rationalism or neoliberalism. Uh, refugees, now is the next topic from that, that decade. The Australian government confirmed its pariah status regarding refugees seeking asylum in this country. And this is highlighted by a, a refugee activist and uh, a, a singer, Phil Monsoor, and we'll go to that song now, Who Killed Reza Barati? This action is happening tonight. These vigils are happening all around the country. There are over a thousand. The, we must remember Reza, who died, and we must ask for the closure of Manus Island. Why did he die and who is guilty? Not me, says the politician in those closing borders wins elections. His death we do regret, but stopping the boats is what we said. Who comes to this country we will decide. It's just too bad that young man died. It wasn't me that smashed his head, you can't blame me, now he's dead. Who killed Reservati? Why did he die and who is guilty? Not me, says the humble boulder, Australian flag wrapped round his shoulders. He should have come the proper way, fuck up, we're full is what we say. It's not our fault he was on the run, if he wasn't locked up then more would come. I'm sorry that that stranger died, if I knew him I would have cried. Who killed Reza Barati? Why'd he die and who is guilty? Me, says the company chairman whose corporation ran his island prison For my stockholders I do my best Returning the profits that they expect I'm not responsible for what happened to him I'm not to blame for every employee's sin Any inquiry you will see There are others complicit before it comes to me Who killed Reza Barati? Why did he die and who is guilty? I said the big world leader who prosecutes the war on terror I'm keeping the world safe for you It's what leaders are appointed to do The refugees that have to flee are not my responsibility Don't point your finger at me He was in prison to keep you free Who killed Reza Barati? Why'd he die and who is guilty? Not me, says the TV presenter, that politicians wrap round their fingers. I report how they said he died in any way, they won't let us inside. I believe in the public's right to know, but you can't take cameras where they can't go. I'm not responsible for any death, we report the news by what rates best. Who killed Reza Barati? Why did he die and who is guilty? Me, says the guard from G4S They put our security under stress It's what we were contracted to do Cruel and dirty jobs for you He should have accepted his fate Gone back before it was too late Don't say murder, don't say kill I was doing my job, you paid the bill Who killed Reza Barati? Why 
they die and who is guilty. That was Phil Monsour with Who Killed Rosemarati. The now we're moving on to the local government elections in twenty in twenty twenty. Um, and in the last decade, one curious outcome of the Brisbane City Council elections was the emergence in the latter part of the decade of the Greens as a serious uh, political force, electoral force. And um, that may play out in the 2020 local government elections that are coming up where we can see the Greens will be contesting a number of different seats. Um, Let's just go now to a, a word from our sponsor and then we'll get on to uh, the protest movements that grew up in, in uh, various parts of the world during the last decade. Books at Stones is an independent, family-owned bookstore specialising in Australian authors and stories, with also a range of medical, nursing and alternative medicine textbooks and many more interesting selections for you to choose from. Come on down to 360 Logan Road at Stones Corner. See www.booksatstones.com.au for more info. Don't forget to flash your 4ZZZ subscriber card for a 10% discount. Books at Stones, a proud sub-discount outlet of 4ZZZ. Protest movements in Latin America, in Hong Kong, in Iraq, uh, Bolivia, West Papua and elsewhere, protest movements rose up looking for freedom. We show solidarity with them and the best way is open to us. The paradigm shift will continue to report from these struggles in the coming decade. Um, So let's just um, have a, a look at a song that talks about the uh, Chilean response to the uh, the right wing uh, put down that that has been happening there this year it's called El derecho de vivir en paz El derecho de vivir sin miedo en nuestro país en conciencia y unidad con toda la humanidad ningún cañón borrará el surco de la hermandad el derecho de vivir en paz con respeto
la paz nuestra canción es fuego de puro amor es paloma palomar oliva del olivar es el canto universal cadena cara cruzar el derecho de That was various Chilean artists who, uh, of course, that is the hymn of uh, Victor Hara, who in the 1970s lost his life in the struggle in Chile. And uh, that is uh, a united group of artists who are trying to remember that struggle and to put it into the context of what has been happening in Chile this year and is likely to continue, I mean, this year, 2019. And, but it's likely to continue into this year as well um, because it's one of the uh, protest movements that have risen up against the authoritarian and austerity of the neoliberal uh, governments around the world. So on the show today, we've tried to portray that by giving you a snapshot of different parts of the decade from 2010 to 2020. That just about leaves us to go out. Before I do, I'd like to put out a, a big thank you to the people who have made this weekly show possible. We're now in our 10th year of broadcasting on community radio for Triple Z, FM 102.1. The station has given us great support on the paradigm shift during that decade. And also I would say that the station itself has stood the test of time. From its early beginning in 1975, the first FM-based community broadcaster in Australia, now in its fifth decade of operation. I don't wish to single out any individuals because, as we say on the paradigm shift, it's more about the content, the ideas and the struggle for a better world. It's not about the individuals who front the show. So let's go out with a favourite of mine and others on the show, Waiting for the Great Leap Forward. This song by Billy Bragg. Camelot 
people Jack and Jacqueline But on the Che Guevara highway Filling up with gasoline Fidel Castro's brother spies A rich lady who's crying Over the luxury's disappointment So he walks over and he's trying To sympathise with her But he thinks that he should warn her That the third world is just around the corner Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell at the first hurdle. only noise I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer and someone asking questions and basking in the light of the 15 fame-filled minutes of the fanzine writer. Mixing pop and politics he asks me what the use is I offer him embarrassment and my usual excuses While looking down the corridor Out to where the van is waiting I'm looking for the great leap forward Jumbo sales are organised There's still parties to be hosted You can be active with the activists Or sleeping with the sleepers While you're waiting for the great leap forwards Oh, one leap forwards, two leaps back Will politics get me to sack? Waiting for the great leap forwards Well, here comes the future and you can't run for it If you've got a blacklist, I want to Revolution and cut out the middle man Right